0: Bismillah rahman rahim Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu wa sallam wa wa mawlana Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma alamna ma yanfa'na wa anfa'na bima alamtana wa zifna min fadlika idman wa ta'aleema innaka ala kulli shayhan qadir wa ba'd. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. If I'm not mistaken, this is Lesson 104, Alhamdulillah. So, in the previous two sessions, we were talking about the post-Hudaybiyah environment in Medina. And how with this treaty between the Prophet and Quraysh, he is now able to send out emissaries, Rusul, envoys on his behalf, to deliver different letters to the centers of power in those civilizations surrounding the Arabian Peninsula and so we talked about those letters the one sent to Najashi to the Qaisar, to the Kisra to Maqawqis and we talked about the content of those letters and then last week we looked at some of the larger lessons we can derive from Number one, the sending of letters, as well as the content and how the da'wah was communicated. And we mentioned that the Prophet sent more than just these letters. He sent many other letters, but those letters went to smaller rulers, the rulers of smaller regions, or the chiefs of larger tribes. And these areas are in the Arabian Peninsula broadly some in places like present-day Oman or Bahrain. And so we're not going to analyze all of those letters. When we get to that stage in the seerah, we'll present some of those letters and what was said. For now, we'll just look at one or two of those that were sent regionally, and then we get to a major issue that happened in the seerah. So after the sending of those letters to the larger rulers in the surrounding regions, We have another letter that the Prophet sent to Hawza bin Ali, who was the king of Yamama. Now, where is Yamama? It's actually halfway between Medina and Bahrain. If you draw a line between Medina and Bahrain, it's kind of halfway there. This was a semi-independent kingdom, and the ruler there, his name is Hawza bin Ali. So he's Arab, and the Prophet sent him a letter as well. He sent Saliq bin Amr al Amili to deliver this letter. And Hawda was a Christian man, a Christian Arab. And when he received this letter, he declined the invitation of the Prophet وسلم, وسلم, who said in the letter what he said to some of the other rulers, that if you embrace Islam, you will retain your authority. Of course that authority will be subsumed under the authority of the Prophet alayhi wa alayhi wasalam, but in the daily temporal duties that he maintained those things would have been kept as well. So when that letter was sent to Hauda bin Ali, the king of Yamama he too declined the invitation and chose to remain as a Christian and the Seerah mentions that he had the same fear as the others that if he were to become a Muslim he would lose his authority Even though the Prophet promised him that he would retain it. So the Seerah mentions that he declined the invitation. There were no hostilities, but he declined it and that he died as a Christian. Now, as we said, in this timeline in the Seerah, there's other letters. Those sent to the rulers in Oman, in Bahrain, as well as Yemen. But we'll get to those when we get to them in the actual timeline of the Seerah when they occurred. So now looking at this post-Hudaybiyya environment, we come to an issue, an incident that occurred in the life of the Prophet that stands out in that it was an attack, but it was not like the previous attacks. It was not an overt military assault, it was not an attempted assassination through obvious means such as the attempt to cast down boulders on top of him as some of the Yahud did rather it was a subtle attempt to assassinate or to harm the Prophet and this is the incident when he was attacked by some of the Yahud by sihr, by sihr what we would call sorcery or magic now there's layers of details that we need to talk about if we're going to properly explore this incident. And to get a proper understanding of this incident in the seerah, we have to discuss a few different issues. We have to talk about sihr. What exactly is sihr? How is sihr defined? And what are the different types of sihr? That's number one. Number two, we have to talk about what is actually necessary or impossible or possible with respect to the Anbiya and the Rusul, the prophets and messengers. This is the basic theology that we have to have as the foundation to understand the possibility of that even occurring. That's number two. And number three, we have to talk about the narrations themselves. The narrations concerning the attempted sorcery or the actual sorcery and the effects that it had on the person of the Prophet and then lastly, we have to reconcile that incident with the foundations of our Iman and how we understand Allah protecting the Prophets and Messengers and address some of the objections that some people have had historically to the occurrence of this incident. So we start with defining our terms. So what exactly is Sama? What is magic? Who wants to
1: volunteer an answer? What is magic? Okay, I mean it's dark arts that were sent down to by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to Harut and Marut okay. at the time, and they taught it at basically anybody who wanted to exchange their Deen and their Dunya, and they cannot. Tehr itself cannot be done except by the will of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, and there's no effect without the will of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. I mean, I know I'm going off tangents, but uh, mm-hmm. it's essentially dark arts that were given to Harut and Marut to teach okay. people, and they had a choice whether or not to learn it. But okay. they exchanged their din and dunya if they did. So. Okay, that is a good
0: definition for black magic, but it's not a proper definition of magic because in the field of definitions of ta'rifat, the ta'rif or the had has to be jamir and mani' It has to be Encompassing. encompassing, inclusive, as well as exclusive. So you have to, for a proper definition, you have to include everything that makes it what it is, while excluding from the definition, anything that is not from its essence, or what it essentially is. So to your answer, I would say that is a good general definition for black magic, And I would counter your definition by saying, what about a person pulling a rabbit out of a hat? Does that apply to your definition? It doesn't. So your definition is very specific for a specific type. It's not inclusive of all of the types. So, and I asked that question on purpose, because I want to illustrate that there's some complexity here when it comes to actually defining Sihar. Because there's so many different types and so many different effects and so many different means by which it is done, it's actually not that easy to define. And the scholars, they had some difficulty in defining magic, insofar as they have to separate magic from what is not magic, right? The Prophet says in the famous hadith, Inna min al-bayani Some forms of eloquent speech is sihra. So does that mean that a person who is adib, and bariq, and fasih, eloquent, and educated in literature, who speaks well, is guilty of sorcery? No, because that is not the definition of magic that we're looking at here, right? So one of the best explorations of the definitions, in the plural, of magic, and the exploration of its types, is by Al Imam Shihabuddin Al Qarafi, who was a great Maliki jurist and Usuli in Egypt. And in his famous work, Al Furuq, where he talks about the differences between different things, he talks about the differences between things that are sometimes seen as similar. He has a very detailed discussion on the types of sihah. It spans 38 to 40 pages depending on the edition. So I wanted to look at, at, a, at a very brief snapshot of some of what he has said. I'm not trying to reproduce exactly what he said, but just to give you an idea of the different types out there. So then we can narrow down in the study of the Seerah to see what type of those types was used against the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi So, Sihr In conventional usage, typically refers to what you mentioned, black magic. But it has other meanings and usages. Sometimes they are not prohibited, and sometimes they are. As we mentioned in that hadith, some forms of eloquence are like magic or magic. That is not talking about the sihr we're addressing in the study of the seerah more broadly however the magic as a term has been associated with certain words that shed some light on its meaning they say things like bewitchment or beguilement or enchantment or sorcery or witchcraft but these are just they're almost synonyms for that word it's not actually defining what is. so what they all have in common all the forms, is that they lead the subject, or maybe we say the object, the recipient of the sihr, to believe what he sees is real when it is not. So you go to the sihr of the sorcerers of Fir'aun, what exactly did they do? They Did they have actual snakes? They didn't. What did they have? They had ropes. They had ropes So They <laughs> They bewitched the eyes Of the people And they came with a mighty magic it, it really It worked in bewitching the eyes In making people think That these ropes Are actually serpents When in fact they were not serpents And you see how Allah Ta'ala Invalidated and defeated their magic at the hands of Musa السلام, When he was told to cast down his staff. And what happened to the staff? qalaba, It became a different entity altogether. It actually became a literal serpent that consumed those ropes. And one narration in the tafsir mentioned that it was a very large serpent that slithered into the crowd as the people were watching causing them to run away. It was a real snake. So that wasn't magic, because it wasn't bewitching the eyes where they're seeing something that they think is real, but isn't real. It was an actual serpent. So that is typically what the different forms of magic have in common. But as we see, there's different forms. You have what they call black magic, aswad. And this is typically the magic that is done by giving certain offerings to the jinn. And that can be in the forms of certain formulas that are said that entail shirk and kufr or doing certain actions that entail shirk and kufr to get the jinn, the evil jinn to do the person's bidding, usually to attack someone else or to put themselves in that person's life to cause problems. This is black magic. But in the broader discussion of sihr they look at anything that is from al uloom Al-Khafiya or the occult sciences, things that cannot be readily explained by our basic observation of cause and effect. So they'll include in that sometimes, Ilm Al-Nujum or astrology. Sometimes they talk about Ilm Al-Qayyafa or firasa, which is physiognomy. That's not Sahar, but it's basically determining a person's lineage or their personality traits through their physical form. That's not the same as black magic. You have which is basically the combination of the person's Himmah, their will, with certain physical material forces to manipulate the natural order. That can include enchanting the eyes, which is what the, the Sahara of Fir'aun did. That can use um, combinations of letters and symbols uh, to put spells on people, right? It takes different forms. You have Taskhir Arwah, which is a kind of magic that involves uh, getting the bidding of jinn or basically stronger, like the ethereal realm. <coughs> We would say normally that's jinn to do the bidding of someone, not necessarily through the dark arts of black magic, but other means that could be called as well. You have talasim, uh, uh, you know, this uh, talismanic magic. You have uh, which is like pulling rabbits out of a hat, sleight of hand techniques. That's obviously not the same thing as casting spells on people involving kufr and shirk and, getting the bidding of jinn. It's a big difference between the two. What they all have in common, and why they would all be grouped under Sihar, is because in Arabic, Sihar is, as a word, pretty much anything that is Khafi, that escapes immediate apprehension as to its cause. I mean, even in Arabic, you see other words that come from Sihar. So, Wabil Ashari. Allah says about the believers in the Ashar, the is Ashar, the time of Suhoor. Why is Suhoor called Suhoor? Why does it come from the same root letters as magic? Both are dark and hidden and not so subtle or not so obvious. They're very subtle. Uh, you're late in the night before Fajr, it's dark, especially in an era pre-electricity. It's all quiet you're taking your meal quietly this is the time of suhoor right so sihr can involve anything that is subtle uh, that's not immediately known regarding its cause and so on so some of these are worse than others you have black magic which is the worst that involves using the jinn to do one's bidding to harm other people you have a al asfar which is a kind of magic that involves discovering buried treasures, canoes, right? You have sihr ahmar, which involves using animals, animal sacrifices and the use of blood, hence why it's ahmar or red. And this is used to affect people's emotions. And that is typically the kind of sihr that gets people to fall in love with someone they wouldn't normally fall in love with or to hate someone that they wouldn't normally hate and they have no reason to hate. That's the type of magic. And that type of magic is all over the world. It's all over the world. That would be sihr ahmar. You have sihr akhdar which involves the uses of, of potions, of ashab, of herbs and spices and certain combinations with the himma of the person mixing them together. So there's a combination of the himma the, the will of the sahir and the actual material substance being used and then put in the food of that victim or person to affect them. So it's not just the herbs and it's not just the will of the person, it's the combination that somehow was discovered or taught to them and passed down. Um, there's certain countries I've been to where you see places like that where they still sell these types of objects. There's one place I went to, I passed by, and it looked like something out of a 1980s movie, like the Gremlins or something. And you see all these herbs and spices and iguana skins and bat wings and all this stuff. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm with someone walking with me in the city. and I said, what is this?" I said, "Oh, that's, they use that for sehar." And he says, "You know, you see that, that, that black stuff there in that jar, That stuff is called secta. Sekta and they put that in milk and the person drinks it and they stop talking so much If they're a chatterbox, they just they stop talking SubhanAllah You want to shut someone up? You go get Sekta, you put it in the milk and then this person all of a sudden they stop talking There's so many different forms and that's why it's difficult to uh, Just give a single ruling or a single definition that applies to all of them equally so with regards to the ruling on, on Sihr, again, it depends on what type you're talking about and what it involves. There is agreement, obviously, إجماع, that any kind of black magic that involves uh, worshipping other than Allah or committing or uttering words of Kufr, is, that itself is Kufr that takes one outside of Islam. and. I mean, there's some differences of opinion about whether the sahir has a had or not, and depending on what they do with it, but that would be kufr by agreement. If it's just herbs meant to shut someone up, and it doesn't involve the person doing kufr, it would be sinful, but they're not actually doing an act of kufr, right? So it always depends on what's being done. If the person utters words of kufr to get the service of the jinn, then it's kufr if the person uses these instruments with the belief that they have independent power to harm or benefit other people, well that belief would be kufr. If the sihr involves actions like blaspheming Allah Ta'ala or worshipping jinn, that's kufr. If it's other than that, it would be haram. Uh, It all depends on what's being used and the form it takes. So that's a really short summary of some of the types of magic, and it shows you the difficulty in just defining it all as one. Bayan, uh, for instance, eloquence in speech, although it's called sihr in the Hadith, no one would say that that is a category of sihr that has the same Sharia ruling as black magic. It's a word that means something enchanting, but it doesn't carry with it a, a legal meaning unless the words are used to mix truth with falsehood in which case it would be haram, or to beautify kufr, in which case that would be kufr too. But it wouldn't be the same sihr as um, calling upon jinn, doing blasphemous actions, or uttering blasphemous statements, and mixing things to bewitch someone and cause them harm, or what they think is benefit. It all depends on these factors. So having mentioned that, we now know a little bit about magic and the different types. We now have to shift into the second second issue which is the belief that we have as Muslims regarding the qualities of the prophets and messengers uh, in the science of aqidah in the section of nubuwat or prophetology we believe as Muslims that the prophets and messengers of Allah possess human qualities that do not lead to or detract from or prevent them conveying the message or detract from their status. We believe that it is possible for the prophets and messengers to experience illness, to experience physical harm, to experience hunger and thirst, to experience illnesses that do not prevent them from conveying the message. We do not believe that the prophets and messengers can be afflicted with things that prevent them from carrying out the message, or which make them unsightly and repulsive to others, because if they were made repulsive in any way, people would run away from them, and that would prevent the conveyance of the message. So, general sicknesses, physical attacks, um, anything of that sort is permissible. It is When I say permissible, I mean it's it is jaiz is jaiz aqlan wa shar'an. Meaning it is rationally possible, and it is empirically affirmed because we know through so many mutawatir reports that the Prophet suffered injuries, that he suffered from certain illnesses at different times, that he experienced hunger and thirst and fatigue. These things are all possible with respect to the Prophets and Messengers. And one of the best statements on this is found in the words of al-Imam al-Sanusi rahimahullah when he mentions that يَجُوزُ عَلَيْهِمْ الْأَعْرَاضُ الْبَشَرِيَّةِ الَّتِي لَا مَقَامَاتِهِمْ Aliyah. he says it is permissible for the prophets and messengers to experience normal human experiences or qualities that do not detract from their lofty status Now this statement is very short, but in this short statement, he packs in a lot of information. So there's three elements to this statement. يَجُوزُ عَلَيْهِمْ الْأَعْرَاضِ الْبَشَرِيَّةِ It is permissible for the prophets and messengers to experience normal human experiences like sickness and the like. That excludes those who went to the excess, such as the Christians, who ascribed Prophet Isa with divinity? So that in, that first statement is actually a refutation against the Christian belief that uh, claimed divinity for Jesus Christ. I he set up. The second part of the phrase, al uh, bashariya this excludes the the Arabs of Jahiliya who believed that the prophets and messengers cannot be human but they have to be angels. Now this is a theme running through the Quran and you have to understand this to understand the Quran. The the Arabs in Jahiliyyah, broadly speaking, did not believe that Allah Ta'ala sends human messengers. They believe that if a messenger is sent to human beings, it has to be an angel, right? And this is why you read so many times in the Quran, verses like, "Hul Inna Ana Basharun Mithlukum yuha Say, I am but a man like you. He's not saying, like they obviously know that he's a human being. No one's doubting that the Prophet ﷺ is Bashar. So when Allah tells him to say to the Arabs, his people, I am a Bashar, He's not telling him to say, what is an obvious fact that they all agree on? It's the full ayah, I receive wahi, I receive revelation. So when you understand that they denied the prophets being human beings, you understand those verses better. Allah Ta'ala is telling him to say this so that they understand Allah sends human beings as messengers, not angels. Since human beings and they receive the honor of Wahi. So, uh, it is permissible for the prophets to experience these human qualities that do not detract from their lofty status. So, the first phrase is addressing the Christians, the second, or the word, بشرية, is addressing the Jahili Arabs. And the third part of the phrase that does not negate their lofty status is responding to the Yahud who would ascribe those things or and more to the Prophets and Messengers. They would not just ascribe simple sicknesses or injury. They would ascribe things that detracted from their maqam. And so Imam al-Sanusi succinctly states our core belief regarding the Prophets, addressing the Christians and the Jews and the Jahili Arabs in one sentence. يَجُوزُ عَلَيْهِمْ الْبَشَرِيَّةِ الَّتِي لَا مَقَامَاتِهِمْ العليا. And this is, you see the genius of these scholars and how they could pack into a very short statement, uh, something that addresses multiple groups and their errors in belief. So having mentioned that, the proof that it's possible for the Prophets and Messengers to experience these things, is the fact that they occurred the fact that these things have been transmitted to us in mass transmitted narrations reports of the prophet suffering injury or falling ill or some prophets even being killed at the hands of other people the fact that these things happened is a proof that they are possible so that is our basic belief regarding the prophets and messengers So having discussed magic and a little bit about what it means, and having discussed this foundational belief, we now look at the incident itself in the seerah, the incident of the sorcery. You understand that we understand these narrations in light of these things we just discussed. So we have the hadith in which the Prophet returns returns from Hudaybiyah in the month of Dur-Hijjah. And in the beginning of Muharram, it is narrated that some of the Yahud that remained in Medina, because now the three tribes are gone, those that remained, it is said that they remained, but they were munafiqoon They were putting on appearances as if they are Muslims, but they still remained attached to their previous religious identity. That's how they were remaining in Medina. So some of these Yehud that remained in Medina went to another man who was not in Medina, a man by the name of Labid Ibn A'asam, who was a Jewish man. Labid Ibn A'asam was a, an ally of Banu Zurayq, and he was known to be the most skilled of the Yehud in the dark arts of sorcery. So these individuals who were Munafiqun They went to Labid ibn Asam, who was the most skilled man in sorcery, and they gave him money in return for him performing sihar, targeted against the Prophet. So, what did he do? The narrations, and there are many narrations, we have to reconcile a few of them, but the narrations mention that he took a comb and some of the hairs of the Prophet in the comb and he blew on it and then he took that comb with some of the blessed hairs and he put it in a spathe. now a spathe is basically a container that they would use to keep the male date palm pollen inside because you understand these are this is an agricultural society and if you're going to germinate the date palm or pollinate the date palms what do you do you would take some of that pollen from the male tree and put it in the female tree it gives you more dates so it was in a container used for that he put the comb inside of that container and then he hid it underneath a rock that was around the covering of a well so if you imagine a well at whatever size you have rocks protruding from the inside and from beneath one of those rocks you could find perhaps a crevice some area where you could hide something well he took this container with the comb hid it in the well underneath one of those rocks that were protruding from the inside so it's in the well but it's not at the bottom of the well it can't be seen by the naked eye you'd have to go investigating it and know where to look to even find this thing so he hid it in this place and it is said that the rock that he hid it under was a protruding rock within the well that people would sit on when they would go and try to clean the well from time to time. So it's a somewhat larger rock. It's not a tiny rock, but it's still protruding from the side of the well. And he has it hidden underneath that that little seat. Now the narration in Sahih al-Bukhari mentions that when the, the sihr was done and the sihr started to take effect, the Prophet ﷺ became ill and was unable to eat and drink. And the narration adds that because of the effect of the Sihar, he would imagine, it would occur to him that he had intimate relations with his wives when he hadn't. So to piece together this a little bit better, you may wonder well, how can someone like Labid get access to the comb of the Prophet. How could he get it? He wasn't there. How could these individuals just walk inside of the house and grab a comb? So there's there's an answer to that. And the answer is that one riwayah says that the one who did the magic was the daughter of Labid ibn Al And we reconcile that by saying that she's the one who managed to get access to the comb. Not that she did the actual operation itself, but she facilitated it by getting access to the comb. And it's mentioned that one of his daughters went to Aisha radiallahu anha to basically spy some news to see what's going on after the magic operation had been completed to see is it taking effect or not. And she learned that he was suffering from some illness presumably the effects of the Sihar. So she goes back and tells her other sisters, and one of the sisters says, if he is truly a prophet, he will be informed. Informed that it's Sihar, informed about where it's located. He will be informed. Otherwise, he will be befuddled by the magic. He won't understand where it's coming from, what's going on, or how to deal with it, until he loses his aqal, his reason, And it will be a return for all that our people have suffered." You see they're thinking if if he's not truly a prophet the magic will intensify over time until eventually he loses his aqal and once that's happened this entire thing collapses in on itself and we will be able to return after we were expelled. That's the game plan. So most of the narrations concerning the state that he was under the effects of the Sihar for about two weeks, feeling uh, unable to eat, unable to drink a lot, and sometimes thinking that he had intimate relations with his wives when he didn't. And then around two weeks after this, he received a visit from the angel Jibreel And Mikail was along with him and they informed him where the comb was located and when he woke up he sent Ammar and Ali with some others to go to this well known as the well of darwan and they went and brought the container back with the comb. One narration says that he also went himself and after they removed it and undid what was inside of the container the narration says that he rose as if he had been unfastened from tethers. As if someone was tied up, feeling very constricted, all of a sudden feeling free. That's what the narration mentions. Uh, One one narration in Bukhari says that he too went to the well himself along with Ali and Ammar and they found this container with the comb inside. And Imam Al-Bayhaqi among others, records from Ibn Abbas that they found that the knots that had been tied around the hairs inside of the comb were eleven knots in total. And it was after this incident that Allah Ta'ala revealed to the Prophet and Nas al The two chapters for seeking refuge, how many ayat are contained in these two chapters in total?
1: Seven.
0: Eleven. Eleven. So it is said that each ayah for one ayah for one knot. So 11 ayat for 11 knots. But the two chapters are for our use as well. Whether we're attacked by sih or just we want protection from shayateen and jinn, we have these two chapters that were revealed for the entire ummah as well. So that is the basic story. There's not, there's a lot of narrations, but they're repeating the same facts with a few minor differences in details. But we have to unpack this a little bit. We have to unpack this because this incident has at times been considered controversial among some, among some theologians. Now Imam al-Nawawi, he mentions in his commentary on this hadith, in his commentary on Sahih Muslim He says that the sound view is that Sihar is real, sorcery is real, it has a reality. And this is the position asserted by the overwhelming majority And this is the position of the generality of the Ulama. And the statement of Imam al-Nawi gives you the impression that there were some dissenting voices. And there were some dissenting voices, but the bulk of those dissenting voices were not from within orthodoxy, not from within Ahl-Sunnah, normative Sunni Islam. The majority of the dissenting voices were from the Mu'tazila the extreme rationalists, and their opposition to this was not because they didn't believe that magic is real, it's because they felt that this incident if true, if true, they felt that it would undermine the authority of the Quran and Revelation because in their mind if it's possible that the Prophet could be under the influence of magic and made to imagine things that were not real, what's to say that he could have imagined something as an ayah when it's not an ayah? That was their objection to this issue. They thought that it undermined the authority of the Qur'an. So that was the view of the Mu'tazila. classically. There were some voices within the broad umbrella of Sunni Islam that took that view. They are a very tiny minority. The most prominent of them was Imam Abu Bakr al-Jassas, who was a great Hanafi scholar, the author of a very valuable tafsir on Ahkam al-Qur'an, the rulings in the Qur'an. However, it's very obvious from Abu Bakr al-Jassas, this great Imam, that he had certain Mu'tazili leanings that's undoubtedly true that's affirmed by the ulama and this is one of those incidents where he took the mu'tazili position against the position of the majority so i think the best way to respond to the issue is to look at it from the start with the Hanafi theologians because the Hanafi theologians they're from his milu, they're from that region and they address this issue as well so you have starting with the words of the great Imam al-Tahawi rahimahullah the author of the famous work on Aqidah, al-Aqeedah al-Tahawiyyah he mentions not in Aqeedah al-Tahawiyyah but he mentions elsewhere ففي هذين الحديثين ما قد دل على بقاء عمل السحري إلى الوقت الذي كان سحرا النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم عَلَى مَا فِي هَذَيْنِ الْحَدِيثِينِ وَإِذَا جَازَ إِلَىٰ ذَٰلِكَ الزَّبَانِ جَازَ بَعْدَ ذَٰلِكَ So he says these two hadith, the hadith about magic and the hadith about the uh, Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas, they indicate that black magic remained existing until the time of the Prophet and when he came under the effect of it. So if it remained until that time, then its existence after that is also possible. So that's Imam al-Tahawi. Uh, moving along in the within the Hanafi theologians, we come to the great Imam Imam al-Huda, Imam Abu al-Mansur al-Maturidi, one of the greatest theologians in Islamic history. And in his work Ta'wilatu Ahl sunnah his work of tafsir, which centers on theology, he talks about this in his tafsir of Surah Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas. And he says, uh, in the tafsir states, قَالَ الْفَقِيْهِ رَحِيمُهُ اللَّهِ And the Imam, وَلَكِنْ عِنْدَنَا فِي مَا قِيلْ أَنَّ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ سُحِرَ وَجْهَانِ فِي إِثْبَاتِ رِسَادَتِهِ وَنُّبُوَّتِهِ He says, according to us, regarding what has been said, meaning that he was uh, under the uh, effects of the magic there are two means in demonstrating the messengership of the Prophet meaning in the incident itself from it we can derive two means of establishing his own nubuwa and risala. he says number one أحدهما بما علمه بالوحي أنه وذلك وَلَا وَقُوفَ So number one is that the Prophet ﷺ came to, knew, came to know about the Sihr through what? Through revelation about the black magic that was cast on him for that was done secretly and no one could have known about that unseen matter except through revelation. So he received the Wahi telling him it was Sihr. Number two he says... بما ابطل عمل السحر بتلاوه القران فيصير لتلاوته في ابطال عمل السحر ما لعصا موسى عليه السلام وان هذا في كونه ايه اعظم مما فعل موسى عليه السلام لان ذلك ينوع بنوع ما له الفعل والعمل من حيث جوهر والطبع من حيث مراه العين به so he says number number two, the recitation of the Quran, it extinguishes the effect of the magic just as the staff of Musa السلام, destroyed the effects of the magicians of Fir'aun. In fact, this is even more so because in the first case, there is a, a discernible material cause, the serpent itself consuming those ropes. Whereas this is through revelation revealed and recited on the tongue. It's not a material substance that takes a form. So it's even stronger. So here you see this great Imam, the greatest of the Hanafi theologians, affirming that it was a factual event. It actually occurred. And Going on past him to another great Imam, Abu Laytha Samarkandi, a great Hanafi jurist who died in the year 373 after Hijrah. In his tafsir, he mentions in the tafsir of Surah Al-Falaq that the Prophet wasallam was affected by the magic done by labid ibn A'asam. And he says, ثُمَّ قَالَ عَزَّوَجَلُ وَمَنْ حسد يَعَنِي كل حَسَدٍ أَرَادَ بِهِ بِنْ عَصَمِ so Allah Ta'ala says, and from the evil of an envier when he evil envies, meaning from all envy. And he intends by this Labid ibn A'sam, the Jew. So he affirms this. Imam al Nasafi, another great Hanafi theologian, affirms this in his commentary on the Quran. Uh, the reason why I'm mentioning the Hanafis first is because the first to dissent was Imam Abu Bakr al Jassas al Hanafi. Uh, taking the Mu'tazili view, but the recognized view among the Hanafi Ulama theology, the Maturidiyah is that no, this actually happened. Uh, Imam badruddin Al-Aini also, the great Hanafi scholar, the contemporary of Imam uh, Ibn Hajar Al-Asqalani, who also has a commentary on, um, on Sahih bukhari and they were in some competition with regards to that, because Imam badruddin Al-Aini's Sharh is very Hanafi centric, Imam Ibn Hajar's commentary is very Shafi'i-centric in the Fiqhi matters. But in his Sharh, he says, I won't read the Arabic. He says, some mulhideen, some heretics, objected to the hadith of Aisha. And they said, how can the magic affect the Messenger of Allah, وسلم, whilst magic is disbelief and is the action of the devils? How can its harm reach the Prophet while he was under the protection of Allah and Allah supported him with the angels, and the revelation was protected from shayateen? I answer, قُلْتْ This objection is invalid, for Allah said to His Messenger قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ Say, I seek refuge in the Lord of the Daybreak until you reach the end of the chapter he says and the blowers and nafathat are those magicians who tie knots none of this entails that the effect of this was permanent or that it affected him internally or in his capacity as a messenger rather the effect of the magic is similar to what a sick person gets affected by when he gets a fever or such, such as weakness in speech uh, or minor imaginings. You know, you, you think you saw something you didn't. Then this disappeared and Allah thwarted the plots of the magician. There is consensus regarding the Prophet's infallibility in conveying revelation. So, I mean, that's the standard view that we have. And this is not just among the Hanafis, this is everyone else as well we have the statement of the Hambari ibn qayyim who says quite beautifully wa qad ankara hadha ta'ifah min al-nas <laughs> wa qalu la yajuz hadha alayhi wa dhannuhu naqsan wa laysa al-amru kama za'amu bal huwa min jinsi ma kana fihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam min al-asqami wal oja. وَهُوَ مَرَضٌ مِنَ الْأَمْرَاضِ وَإِصَابَتُهُ بِهِ بِالْسُمِّ لَا Very beautifully put. He says a group of people have denied this. That magic was done. And they said it's not permissible for him. But what is permissible again? You know, human human experiences that do not detract from his lofty position he says they thought that this is a deficiency and a fault but that is not the case as they claim rather it is from the same jint, the same genus of things that affected the prophet of illnesses and pains and it is but one among other illnesses that affected him just as poison affected him there being no difference between them right so that's a famous statement mentioned in Zal Ma'ad. Qadir Iyad, the great Maliki jurist, he has what is perhaps the most famous explanation of the incident in his Shifa, and he mentions the same thing, that sihr, in Qadir Iyad is before Ibn Qayyim, he says that the sihr is a kind of marad, it's a kind of sickness, it's a kind of illness that affects people, and it arises, He says, from permissible causes, the same as any other type of illness to which the Prophet was subjected and which did not detract from his Nubuwa. He says, as for the narration, where it says that it used to seem to him that he had done something when he had not done it, none of that concerns the conveyance of the risala or laying down the laws of Sharia. Nor does that detract from his truthfulness since the Hujja, the dalil is established and the consensus is affirmed that he is protected from that. So this incident doesn't take away the ajma'ah. He says basically that the effects of the magic were affecting his outward limbs, uh, sickness, being unable to eat or drink and uh, thinking that he had intimate relations with his wives when he did not on that particular part of the experience because we can understand physical pains but what is this Takhayul this imagining that he had in those days that he had intimate relations with his wives when he did not how do we understand that? The great Madiki Imam and Imam al Mazi Rahim Allah. He says, Bakar called a bar do nas in the morada bilhadithi and Nahu can a son of Allah who are lay he was seldom. You hail Ilehi and Nahu Wata Azojatihi, Walam Yakun, Wata Ahun Wahada Kathiran Mayakara, Tahayulu who did insani filmanami, Fala Yabrodo and You hail Ilehi filyakovah. He says that. Some people say that what this hadith means is that he would think that he had intimate relations with them when he had not. He says this happens a lot with a person when they're dreaming. They may have a dream that they're with their wife intimately when they have not. So if this is possible when a person is sleeping in the dream state, it's also possible that they could be suffering the effects of magic and maybe think that happened when it didn't. It's very similar. It's like walking and daydreaming at the same time, thinking that you did something when you didn't. That doesn't affect wahi. So Ibn Hajar al Asqalani, he quoted the statement of Imam al maziri rahimahullah, the great madh'ih And after quoting him, he says in his commentary on Bukhari, he says, "Wahada qad sari'han fi al Bukhari hatta kana yara." يَظُنُّ أَنَّهُ يَأْتِي النِّسَاءُ وَلَا يَأْتِيهِنْ وفي رواية الحُمَيْدِي أَنَّهُ يَأْتِي أهله ولا So that, what Imam Azri said is actually stated explicitly in the riwaya of Bukhari from Ibn Uyayna and is stated explicitly in the riwayah of Al-Humaydi that the effects of the magic were such that he thought that he had intimate relations with his wives but he did not so, I end this analysis with a statement from Al-Muhallab, who says uh, that the Prophet was protected from the Shayateen, but that does not prevent them from intending or attempting to bring harm to him, because we find the Sahih narration that a shaitan tried to come to him as he was in salat to disturb him in the prayer but Allah gave him power over that shaytan there's a famous narration where he wrestled a shaitan down while in salat showing you the combination of two things of praying and fighting some being at the same time so he says the same thing for magic Uh, whatever harms came to him did not uh, cause any kind of deficiency or had no connection to him conveying the message he, he says rather he says it's from the same genus of other harms that came to him from illness or being weakened in a weakened state where it was difficult to speak, or being unable to do certain actions for a period of time, uh, or thinking something had happened when it didn't actually happen, but all of which was removed and basically thwarted by Allah Ta'ala thwarting the plots of the Shayatin. So that is the incident and how it has been classically understood and reconciled with how we understand what is possible for the Prophets, with regards to these human experiences and their conveyance of the message. So you have to take the whole package. If you don't understand the fundamentals of theology of what is possible and impossible, and you lend your ear to people who have issues with the narration, you could easily be fooled that this narration is problematic. And it's not problematic if you understand it in light of this. Uh, Why do the ulama say all of this, why did they spill so much ink to defend the hadith? Because the hadith is Sahih. The hadith is rigorously authenticated and there are many, many narrations of it. So if you're going to say that it's not a sound hadith and you're not basing it on the criteria of isnad analysis, then you really undermine every other hadith. You can pick and choose. If it is Sahih, and there's no question about it, you have to reconcile it with the foundations of belief. You can't just throw it out because you don't like it. You have to find a way to reconcile it. Because if you throw it out, then what's next is another person will come along who finds something that they don't like, and they're gonna throw out another hadith. And then another person comes and throws out another. And before you know it, everything is thrown out by different groups, who find certain things they don't like. So you have to reconcile it in light of these principles. And this is what is demonstrated in the words of those scholars. Uh, so I went over the time a little bit, by like three minutes. I had a little bit more in case someone asks a question, but because I anticipated a certain question and I wanted to bring something for it, but we'll see if the question comes. I have a few. A few. <laughs> a few. Let's take the brother's question <laughs> first. Okay, <I'll> take it. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, one of the of this incident is we human now have those two swords. Exactly, uh, for exactly. Our. So it's a rahmah for the Ummah that the incident happened. It establishes his own truthfulness and revelation, because it was only known through revelation, Without revelation, he would not have known where this is located. So everything was invalidated. The effects of the magic, their attempt, and their claims that it is just a Bashar, he's not a Rasul. So it established the Hujj against those people as well. And is a remedy for us to the end of time. Exactly. So, so according to this incident, you know, black magic or other type of magic, Caused physical harm. Yes. Even to the Prophet. So it's back to that definition that it's only illusion, like what happened with Sahal at So it's kind of like contradicts the definition that we started with. Not exactly. Uh, because if you're talking about magic that has, a, that takes a form of bewitching the eyes, where something visible is made to appear, that's a kind of sihar. And in this sihr too, there's physical harm, but there's also takhayyu. Right? This being made to see, (inaudible) ka'annahu wa ta'ahunna wa lam Right? That is a part of it as well. So there's that beguilement. Um, So again, sihr linguistically has that meaning of subtlety. Much of it is, uh, we say it's real, but oftentimes what it creates is illusions of things that have happened that have not happened but it can also have harmful effects as well and we didn't really identify what type of magic it was how exactly he did the magic what operation he used specifically we don't know that much about it but we do know that it involved the the personal effects the hairs and the comb uh, being placed in this container and that's in combination with his own Himmah, the Himmah of the sahib along with whatever he said of incantations invoking God knows what. So a lesson from this too, that I didn't mention, is that this incident teaches us the importance of being on guard with how we dispose of our fadalat, the nail clippings, yeah. hair clippings and things like that most of us we do that in our bathroom we put it in the trash can no big deal but if someone really wants to get you they go through your trash couldn't they so traditionally people would dispose of their hair and nails by burying them somewhere where no one sees because those become one of the most sought-after effects of the person used to do magic against them so not to make anyone paranoid but just to be aware um,
1: yeah.
0: Uh I have, yes. so when you were saying when you were mentioning dream and non-dream state, is it something looks like uh, magic also? Play games with your conscious subconscious and subconscious mind mixing something, uh it little bit is I'm getting that idea. Yeah, I think oh. the best way to explain it is to consider if you've ever had a really bad fever If you've had a really bad fever, a really bad flu, and you're so tired and weak, there's nothing for you to do but lie down. And and as you're lying down, you're drifting in and out of sleep. And you're semi-awake, but also going into sleep. And you start to have these dreams. And you're in that semi-conscious state because of the effects of the fever. And you may think that something happened when it didn't. This is probably a more intense form of that, but it's along the same lines. I remember when I was a kid, you know, back in my age, the action figures to have were G.I. Joe, right? And I had a dream, it was a really vivid dream that I had a particular G.I. Joe character that I really wanted, but my parents didn't buy me. And I had this dream it was so vivid. I was outside in my backyard playing with it, with the other figures. And I woke up, and I went looking for it, and then five minutes later I realized that was a dream. That was a dream. I don't actually have it. Oh man,
1: somnolence. I think that's what it's called. That's what they call it. It's called somnolence. The dream legs. They're going in and out and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, fevers cause delirium if it's really bad. Yeah. So you can Mm -hmm. be delirious. I have a question, like from your experience in Amsharafa. have you seen black magic like in
0: our communities in the US uh, the um, worst so? case I've ever seen in my life is don't scare the kids. In the Greater Pittsburgh region. That doesn't mean that there's not others outside of the region that have something worse, but in my limited experience, the worst I've seen is um, here in the Greater Pittsburgh area, an individual can I law relieve them uh subhanallah. It, it it exists and there's different forms and it takes different forms in different regions and that stuff follows people from back home. If if it happens to them back home it follows them here. Right? So it's it's still around. It's not as common perhaps,
1: but it's still around. it's quick the the whole thing is airtight for me personally obviously uh we believe it but the uh view, i just don't get it if in the quran it specifically says correct so yeah. how can there be any question about not well, yeah, the yeah the, the the great flaw of the
0: mu'tazira in this regard is their inability to reconcile because when you listen to the objection the objection does make sense but the answer to it is not in rejecting the hadith it's in doing a proper tarjeeh, a proper reconciliation and some of them are telling that they would use the the verse in the Quran where Quraysh would say we only see you as one that is Mashura. so they say well if that's what Allah refutes the claim that he's masḥūr, this hadith would establish that he actually was masḥūr.
1: But the masḥūr in that is a permanent saḥāb. No, permanent. the masḥūr in
0: the that? ayah is masḥūr bīmāna saḥib, masḥūr bīmāna makhdoor, and that's the the linguistic meaning of it, and that's the the understanding of the early <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: and yes
0: because sometimes the Ism maf'ul can take the meaning of the Ism Fa'il right? so that's how we understand it but on a surface level without going deeper into Arabic someone might take that verse and say well Mashur, Mashur, we have a problem here so I'm forced to choose between the Qur'an or the Hadith here I'm going to choose the Qur'an over the Hadith and therefore they negate the Hadith to Uphold a very narrow interpretation of the verse, but it's a failure to reconcile it, yeah. right? If you reconcile it properly,
1: there's no there's no problem at all. Yeah. Regarding Muhammad, we said protection against uh, Shaylteen and uh, Jin, but obviously also protection against and in right? Yeah. Yeah, in general. Yeah. Yeah. in general. Because yeah. you said you only mentioned Jin.
0: Uh, I mean Shaylteen yeah. and Insi and Jin. I mean those who are. Mentioned in the chapter itself are human beings. Right. And nafafatif al are human beings. But obviously, right? you know,
1: jinnah is the background. One is. One nas. Right. Just want to make Yeah. Some, yeah. Uh, regarding evil life, is this a type of sahir? No. Because I know it that. is the
0: Himma, Remember, we said the person, the sahir, if they take certain potions or incantations, those things themselves don't work independent of the himma of the Sahir involved in the process assume there's nothing there it's just I am it's willing. just the himma of jealousy for yeah, certain people. Say I, I, I want
1: harm for example Or oh, they just have just a I hater and it happens yeah because they see let's say there's no masha'Allah being said or the true intention of the individuals that they really desire what that person has and then you see a week later the person gets sick the child falls right. breaks his leg so
0: Hassan isn't Sahir it's the himma of a jealous envious person that is either purposely directed towards the object of jealousy or it's not on purpose but they're just a hater it's just the himma part if that himma part was combined with some actions involving incantations and jinn and and all of that stuff
1: that would be sahar. so what's it categorized as then, the evil
0: idol is categorized as the effect of a person's ill intention having a, a physical impact on another human being. With Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala's
1: will. Everything will, right? is by the will of Which Allah hard ta'ala. To say because yeah. Just because somebody gives you the evil light doesn't mean it's going to happen. Yeah. The last thing is uh, the antidote of Ruqya. Can we briefly discussed that. The Ruqya of Qur'an,
0: Ruqya of, uh, of Ad'iya ma'thura ghair ma'thura al That's the tried and true remedy For this? Yeah Sometimes it depends Sometimes it involves uh, if, Especially if the person is under the influences of magic that was uh, consumed through food You will try to get the person to vomit that food Or to vomit In general. To, In general to get rid of the effect of it If it has a physical component to it as well if there's no discernible component, then you have the Ruqiyah, the general Ruqiyah. But that's the vast topic, and there's various... Just as you have various forms of Sikhar, there's
1: various ways of doing the Ruqiyah, depending on the type. What, what were you going to say? You said you were going to in, add, add on something, if somebody asked... The Mas'ura. Oh, ma- that part? Yeah, okay. that part. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah.